Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meet and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're fresh off our trip to Slow Food Nations in Denver, a festival that brought together advocates to discuss the future of food. And this week, we're bringing you a special episode inspired by the new Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Manifesto released by Slow Food USA. If we're going to solve food security, we need to say these people have a right to good, healthful food. But we have to do that in a way that kind of insulates this system from the vagaries of the market. Because when you're at a table with somebody, you recognize their humanity. And when somebody cooks for you and serves you food, in a way they're saying they care about your survival. How can we put things into our own hands and have the people of Puerto Rico gain real access to healthy local foods? Listen to Meet and 3 this week for our highlights from Slow Food Nations. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Marcus Samuelson, multiple award-winning chef, restaurateur, author, television personality, and co-chair the Board of Directors for Careers Through Culinary Arts Program, also known as CCAP, a culinary training nonprofit. On today's episode, we're going to talk to Marcus about why he's a big supporter of CCAP, how food and immigration go hand in hand. And in our last segment, we'll hear Marcus's Julia moment. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. We've talked a lot on this program about Julia's commitment to giving back, and especially her support of growing the professional food world. We've also talked a lot about the importance of Julia to Julia of culinary education. One topic we haven't yet explored is Julia's global citizen. Julia lived a sizable portion of her life abroad. She lived in France for many years, as well as in Norway, Germany, not to mention her years in Southeast Asia during World War II. These experiences and her continued connection with France introduced her to the wonders of food from other countries. It also connected her with many other cultures and viewpoints. All of this informed how she saw the world and how she related to other people. While she was far from being an immigrant to the United States, Julia very much knew what it was like to be a foreigner in a foreign land. She'd lived that life too, and she treasured the perspectives and lessons it taught her. After all, it gave her her career. Chef Marcus Samuelson has had possibly a more remarkable life than Julia Child. Most definitely, he had a more dynamic and challenging start, having been born in Ethiopia, adopted and raised in Sweden, and having made his mark as a restaurant chef in New York City all by the time he was in his mid-20s. Two decades on, 
Marcus is widely admired as a leading voice in the professional food world, besting Julia by building an empire, not only as an award-winning chef, but also as a successful restaurateur, author, and TV personality. Marcus's accomplishments embody the American dream, and we're looking forward to talking to him about how he leverages his background to help build culinary bridges. We're also going to talk to him about his commitment to giving back. One of the connections Marcus has with the foundation is our mutual support of the culinary training nonprofit Careers Through Culinary Arts Program, a.k.a. CCAP, and we're delighted he could join us today to talk about what they do. Welcome to the podcast, Marcus. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. So let's get, go right into it. Given our mutual appreciation for CCAP, can you tell us in a nutshell what CCAP is and what it does? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, CCAP was started by um, Richard Grossman, uh 25 plus years ago. And, and it's really a high school program that um, it stands for Career Through Culinary Arts. And it started with Mr. Grossman's best way of getting attention of the students was through cooking. And that has now grown into a, um, a program where students can be part of a whole journey of getting scholarship to go to from high school to uh, college. And very often after college, we then guide them back into the workplace and, and learning about really life skills through culinary arts. It was something that Richard thought was really, really important and still is really, really important. But CCAP today is actually also uh, a place where chefs go to today and find really, really good young chefs or young entrepreneurs because um, CCAP has trained the students in seven states and and um, we have many good examples of everything from master sommeliers to restaurant owners at this point, executive chefs, uh, mid-level management. So it's something that has grown so much wider than what Mr. Grassman can ever, you know, in his wildest dream could build. And uh, we have uh, chef partners across the country. Wow, so that that's great to hear. So sort of what started out as something for young people to learn is kind of come for a circle, and you, you see it as also like kind of benefiting chefs because it becomes a, a place to find talent. No, no, absolutely. It is something that has grown to really think through the whole idea of, of what's possible. You know, you think about something that starts as a charity can also be so much more empowering, right? The CCAP community is extremely strong today between um, the students, uh, the alumni that comes out of that, and, and check backs and helps continue to be great mentors. And it's also, you know, one of these bricks that we're building to having a more diverse um, hospitality community, right? Most of the CCAP students come from inner cities, and uh, uh, this is also a great opportunity for us to um, think about diversity and food and inclusion. On that, on that note, is that one of the reasons you decided to make it one of your key philanthropic focuses? I know you do a lot of things, but it seems like you've kind of stepped up to really devote a certain portion of your giving back time to seek out. Yeah, it's it's one of the things. I think I think it's uh, I think the organization is just 
fantastic in so many aspects, but this is one of the things, like, obviously for me, diversity and inclusion is something that matters a lot to me. Uh, when I started cooking, when I worked in France and I worked in Europe, the two things we never saw in the kitchen was people of color and women. And obviously, being a black man and being taught <laughs> by predominantly women, this was not confu- This was very confusing to me. And so I knew one of the missions that I would start when I became an executive chef who could hire my own staff was to be more inclusive. And this is somewhere in the 90s, so we've come far from that, but we still have far to go. And are there other key things you were attracted to, or is it sort of what you were talking about, just of how strong the organizations become in that full? If you've had a rocky start or you come from a background that has been challenging, actually hospitality is one of these industries where it shouldn't matter and it doesn't matter, and we welcome you anyway as long as you give great energy and have great excitement and passion for our industry and CCAP is an example from taking that idea because a lot of students need guidance. How do I get to the industry, right? And CCAP is a great bridge for that. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you thought, because there was a lot of kind of culinary training programs at all different levels, and I was going to ask you to describe kind of what set CCAP apart. Do, do you think that that's one of them? Well, I mean, the fact that we start already in 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 high school, sometimes at the junior level, uh, early, right? So you can you have an opportunity as a senior and a junior to compete, and then uh, be part of it, whether you do well in the competition and get scholarship or not. But you're part of it. You, it's 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 it guides you into figuring out the path, uh, the path and plan to the next step, and. Uh, even if you don't choose hospitality, you're now being part of something that is bigger than yourself that, you know, handles teamwork or discipline or showing up on time. Because those are all the other life skills that obviously you learn at, at CCAP, whether you get a scholarship or not. So it does help you and shape you for the next step, whatever that might be. Yeah, no, I think one of the things that's impressed myself and the foundation is how I wouldn't say it's rigorous as in it's so hard and they put you through the ringer like you're doing military training, but it's very comprehensive and thorough so students can get really good placements. And I thought you you, you haven't yet mentioned what I think is one of the most amazing things is where these often high school students who go through the program and get, as you say, the scholarship end up being able to have a internship. Yeah, and I think that that. One of the absolutely uh, most sort of best connections that we have is our relationships with our restaurants and chefs that, you know, we have great mentors out there in, in many different parts of the country that constantly support CCAP in terms of guidance or whether it's um, scholarship, but it's also obviously the experience that if you're a CCAP student, you can work with you know, at one of Danielle's restaurants, for example, or one year Danielle gave scholarship, a couple of years so Danielle's been in scholarship to students to go to France. You get that international exposure. So, um, and just to mention some, you know, we have CCAP students that work for Mandarin Oriental. We have CCAP students that work for, you know, Wolfgang Puck. So there are so many examples of the relationships with the chefs that's giving the students that very often doesn't know how, how making, understanding the path and plan and, and how to get access to 
to the next step is probably the hardest way as a, as a young adult, as you're making your way, you know, from uh, college to the next step. And uh, CCAP has been one of the uh, one of the tools for that. And also that you can always check once a CCAP student, you always alumni, so you can always check back within the community, and that's very powerful. And can you end up in the Red Rooster Kitchen as a CCAP student? You can end up in the Red Rooster Kitchen, and we've also worked on a lot that you can also, if you want to go in other ways in the industry, like you just don't have to be a chef, you can also end up in front of the house. We've done a lot of placement in Denimeyer's restaurants, and also in other corporate, uh, you know, we now have a great partnership with U.S. Foods that helps students get a job and scholarships in other aspects, right? If you want to work in a test kitchen, you can now do that. So there's obviously our our industry has grown a lot. So which then means that we now can provide different jobs that weren't maybe there ten years ago. And now CCAB, in my experience, is quite New York LA specific. Is that still the case? And how how do people because we have an international audience, how do people we, we who are, are getting seven, really excited are, about participating or recommending so, you know, it? What you can they find know? us in Los Angeles, you can find us in Arizona and, and Pennsylvania and in, in Philadelphia, for example. So yeah, absolutely. And it, do do you just apply on a website? How how does the application process work? Uh, yeah, it, it sometimes it, it can be in one of your high schools, so the, you can seek up the system, uh, the seek up program online. But you can also be you know be lucky and fortunate enough to to find it in your school or in a school nearby you, so you can go to almost like an after after school program. I see. And so, looking toward the future, what what do you see? Do you see CCAP growing kind of as it is, but in more locations and with more opportunity? Or what are the kind of aspirations that the organization is kind of looking toward for the future? I think uh, growth is is definitely something that uh, we're, we're we're trying to we're trying to grow it to communities like Detroit and Newark and so on, but also. Uh, continue growing in the in the regions that we are, you know, like I think this is CCAP is an example of something that worked already for a quarter of a century now, twenty five years Richen and the and the board and Karen and our leaders have been been at it. And you know, there are so many great examples of students that made it all the way to the top. But there's even a larger example of people that are working mid-management that are just great professionals right now, contributing, right? And that's the mass bulk that we should really look at, that this is an example that of the hundreds and hundreds of CCAP alumni that are now contributing every day. In, in Most of them are still in the hospitality industry, and some of them have gone on to other aspects, and they got their training from CCAP. That's really the, the, the strength of CCAP, it, the majority. Well, I know that the theme of community is really an important one to you and one that you go back to in your work. And so I sort of hear that coming out, that that's one of the, the focuses of sort of maybe cultivating and doing more with what is a CCAP community. You know, the hospitality community, like without building a large community, I mean, for me, Red Rooster wouldn't be the same without its Harlem community. Harlem Meetup that we work on would not be the same without its community. So CCAP put you very, very early on that you were part of something much larger than yourself, which requires teamwork, which requires discipline, but also requires you to check back in. And when you're in a position of guidance and mentorship, you have to step up and do that as well. So it teaches you pretty early that, you know, 
collectively can get a lot of stuff done. And uh, that, I think, is a great, great lesson for, for young adults. I agree. Where, where do you think that lesson was learned for you? Because you kind of hit success, you know, at a relatively young age for a chef and notoriety. How did, were you taught that by the chefs you worked with? By, was, was that instilled with you by how you were raised? I think it combination, you know, from definitely from, I had great mentors that put me in those positions that, uh, and working in big brigades in Europe, uh, working, you saw right away, like, as collective, we can get, you know, can really tackle a lot of a lot of stuff, and we can do fantastic food together. It's one of the first things you understand in the kitchen. Like you are nobody by by yourself. Uh, but also, um, I came from a community of fishermen where you always constantly rely on the community surrounding you. I see. Well, that that makes sense. Well, I think there's a lot of great, great themes in that and CCAP representing both a, a community that has members at all different levels who are now in a position to give back and participate as well as really understanding the value of training and teamwork. So thanks for sharing that with us. And we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to talk to Marcus about his own latest adventures outside of his work with CCAP. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Turning back to Julia's books for some summer menu inspiration. One of her last, Julia's Kitchen Wisdom, includes an easy recipe for strawberry dessert crepes, perfect for not putting the oven on. The master recipe for crepes includes a savory alternative with spinach and mushrooms, also perfect for a summer lunch party. Great tasting crepes really depend on the quality of the flour used, so ideal for Bob's Red Mill unbleached all-purpose white flour. Visit bobsredmill.com today, use the discount code JULIA25, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on flour. Food and immigration is a topic that really represents who Marcus Samuelson is. And now it's welcome news that Marcus is hosting a TV show on that exact theme. Now, I'm making a wild assumption that the timing of your show, No Passport Required, which is from Eater and Vox and on PBS, is not really a coincidence. So maybe an obvious question, but why did you want to make this show now? Well, I mean, we've been working on the show for 18 months, and obviously the conversation got so much heated up, much more heated up, you know, over the last year or so. But I think it's a, I think it's important that immigrants and the conversation about immigrants gets heard in and in, in, in told in a very sort of uh, non-monolithic way that there's various different ways of what being an immigrant means, what it represents, and it's added value to the American food scene, but also adds value to the communities it, 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 it works and operates in. And for me, unless you're Native American, I... We're all immigrants at some point, right? Whether it's through our grandparents or our parents or however we got here. We're all here. And that's why America is so unique. So to be challenged and, you know, almost attacked that's been the last six months, um, it was important. It's important work to, to tell diverse stories like this. 
Well, that's actually really interesting to me. And obviously, it makes sense because it, usually it's not easy to create and, and get a TV show into production overnight. So that you actually obviously had the inspiration for doing this kind of show before maybe things came to the kind of um, scrutiny that they're under right now on both sides of the the aisle and with different conversations. So was there something else sort of lurking in your motivation or just your interest in telling this story because it's a, a wonderful part of, of what makes America, America? Well, uh, I think one of our main goals was to show real America. I think when, as you will see the whole body of work, the six episodes, uh, you will see us going from Detroit, where we focus on Arab American community, to Vietnamese American, all the way to Ethiopian American, and also, you know, going to cities like NOLA, Miami, Washington, the DMV, Washington, D.C., DMV, and Queens, for example, and Chicago and the Mexican-American community. It shows how, how diverse it is. It's not just focused in one place. And you're going to hear several different conversations about how everything from DACA to, um, you know, to high-end um, chefs to uh, all types of different people in, in the food spectrum. And it it shows you the beauty of America lies in its diversity, and uh, this is something obviously that's worth celebrating, but also worth reminding ourselves of. Yeah, since, since we're, we're six episodes, I think we have time because you're also, when you went to New Orleans, you weren't doing French food in the front quarter, and when you went to Detroit, you weren't doing all-American burgers. So could you run us through the, the kind of food themes that uh, of that diversity in each of the places? Yeah, I mean, one of the opportunities we have with you know, Passport is really to hopefully do a couple of things. If you live in that city, this still gives you an opportunity to see a part of town that you may or may not be aware of. I, I lived in New York for a very long time, and I was not aware of the Indo-Guyanese community in Queens, for example. So it challenged me as a traveler to, next time I go to Kennedy, to you know, maybe go out an hour or two earlier and, and eat the rotis or, or go to Sibyl's Bakery or, or so on, or Sunday's Roti Shop, for example, right? So even as a mm-hmm. New Yorker, as a diverse, uh, uh, living in such a diverse city, there's still things for me to learn. And then also, as a traveler, when you go to these amazing cities like Chicago, Miami, New Orleans, etc., like, go a little bit off the beaten path. Try something else. Be curious. You know, I think Americans are very curious when we travel abroad. We go to all parts of uh, of the world. Why not travel with that same level of curiosity when we travel within America? Uh, and that was sort of hence the inspiration for the title as well, rather just, i.e. as a message to say, discover the diversity at home, which could mean making a destination trip to New Orleans to eat Vietnamese food, but it could also mean, hey, I live in Detroit and I haven't had this really authentic Arab food yet, I should go try it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's also an opportunity to show stories about um Seen that are very often unrepresented, underrepresented, and here's an opportunity to do that, you know. Yeah, no, and I think that that also changes a lot when if you're someone who's moved, as I have, to different locations, you, different cities in the world, you realize that different cities are impacted by immigration in different ways, mostly usually through ironic random processes of history where certain groups of people um, end up 
moving to a certain place sort of in mass and changing the culture because they bring their traditions with them and they be, they retain them but then they also become american like with the arab american community in detroit or in los angeles with mexican and central american communities i mean i mean telling under told stories or stories of communities that are often just told scrutinized in a negative way i mean yeah, I think it's very important as someone has traveled and experienced several different communities and been an immigrant six times in many different countries, nothing could be further from the truth that immigrants doesn't contribute or don't help out or are not proud Americans, right? So mm. food is one of the best ways of telling those stories, but so is music and so is art and culture. And that's why in those passports we focus so much on art and culture as well, because we it's just not one thing that helps us telling this diverse narrative. It's several things. So um, it's fascinating to me how this false narrative about what immigrant contributes is being peddled right now. And um, I just think that this is an opportunity to say, no, this is not factual at all. Here is some great example of that. Yeah, I think with, with without putting you too much on the spot, having been as I was talking about before, a foreigner in a foreign land over and over again, and also being a person of color, I, I can imagine it's profoundly frustrating for you to hear these false narratives. And, it is frustrating, I mean, but, you know, I think as a black man, you prepared. You you were you constantly raised under the people um, pushing out a false narrative about you and, and other men, other black people and other black men. So I think also it makes me more prepared than most people. You know, this it's immigration now, it's black people before that, and it will be something else after that, right? And it's mm. constantly, you know, marginalized communities that have been, uh, you know, whether it's the gay community, the black community, or immigrant community, we share something that, that also makes us very, very strong, you know? And in many ways, we're used to these lies being told about us. So here's an opportunity to say, actually, this, none of this is true and factual, so, you know, this is, I, I don't, I, I try to focus my, if I get upset, I try to focus in my creativity in my work versus just walking around being upset about it. Because otherwise you'd be upset about it every day. Well, no, that's what I was going to say is the amazing positivity that I hear in your voice and in in your program and in your work, and but I appreciate that that I think is a helpful ex, explanation for people who are possibly quite upset about this, but don't actually personally um, have the same experience of you. Haven't been an immigrant, aren't a person of color. The how do you deal w with these false narratives in a positive way? Well, well, I think that always during challenging times, there's always great artistic work to be done, right? We look at it constantly, right? When some of the toughest times, uh, there's always been a great dialogue, whether it was during the 60s, during the civil rights movement, was also a time where some of the best music was produced, right? Or, mm. you know, like this is constant example of when you're being pushed, creative community always comes together and, and, and put and really put against that, that, that is inspirational, uh, throughout, and I think this is a moment where, as a chef with a platform, uh, together to have PBS, to have Eater of Vox as partners, you know, makes you look inwards even more and be like, you know what, we're going to show some great example here, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, no, I think it's fantastic. So it, 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 it it's definitely a hopeful feeling listening to you talking about it. And certainly um, watching the shows, it's so um, empowering and moving and makes you very hungry at the same time. Yeah. So on that note, actually, I was really curious to hear more from you, too, as um, as a black man who isn't um, by background African-American, you've made Harlem your home and as an immigrant and as a transplant. So I was really curious to hear from you what your adopted home of Harlem kind of means to you. Well, I think I think my journey shows a little bit how the diversity within um, the word black has arrived, right? It, <laughs> we know as black people that people came to this country through slavery and now through immigration and now through me, you know, via, you know, so, so through through many different ways. And I think it's important to show that blackness is not, again, a monolithic voice. Immigration is not a, a monolithic voice. It's very, very uh, diverse in its experience. And I think people, that it's important to be reminded that you can come here in so many different ways. Um, Harlem has always, I think, been an aspirational voice and place for black community in the diaspora all over the world because there's so much culture that's been created in Harlem. So I think very often Harlem is looked in the black community as a, as a capital for culture, as a place where you come and present, whether it's you're a musician or an artist or a chef or a writer. This is the place where you want to sort of come and, and and check the boxes. So it's very powerful to work in this community and live in this community because you're walking around on the same grounds that James Baldwin, Maya Angelou, um, the Studio Museum, the Apollo. So, so much of where civil rights movements that then have benefited black culture all over the world has been dealt with and worked from. So it's not just a place in New York City. It's a very specific place. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that... It's, so have you found that it's empowering for you personally in your aspirations to be in a place that has such a history of both a place that many people felt segregated to, but became, they, they, as you were talking about, made a place of power and a center of culture, despite whatever obstacles were put out around it, if you will. You know, it's been, it, it is very inspirational day by day. You know, when you, my neighbors, neighborhood here is very engaged and involved. Um, if I need information or if I want to talk to my neighbors about something, it's a very much, um, People that have great information about um, the Black diaspora or about deeper dive into African American history, and it constantly challenged me. Just go to a community board meeting. These are super informed, engaged members of the community, and it just constantly informs me how to improve and how to dive in even more. Yeah, I was I wanted to go back to that theme of community because I see it come up in in your work and what you talk about it. And now I'm sort of asking like beyond just Harlem itself. And it seems like you see community as a really important part of your life and everything you do. How how do you think other people should be thinking about, particularly in these rather turbulent times, 
you know, what community is and how it's important to society and other people? Well, I think that, you know, again, I look at Red Rooster as my uh, as communitized work. I I lived in Holland for seven years before we opened Red Rooster, and I did it so I could learn more about the community. So if people come to the restaurant and can connect with Harlem in many ways and see Harlem in many ways. And for me, one thing that was key was to go back to the core word of the meaning restaurant, which means restore your community. So for us at Red Rooster, it meant hiring locally, hiring people that lived and worked, you know, lived in Harlem. So there's many ways that the word community can inspire you. But for me, the most important thing was to creating jobs, creating jobs in this very specific community. So it's not, in my case, just becoming a, a, a neighborhood where all the aspirations are outside the neighborhood. I got to get the good job downtown. Or I got to go to the good school outside Harlem. No, it can actually be created right here. Well, yeah, and that's sort of a return to history of Harlem as a destination, particularly for other people to celebrate and have a good time. And it seems like Red Rooster, it was really a goal of yours to to embody that in in, in many ways and resurrect that excitement beyond just the immediate community. No, absolutely. And I think that any person working in the community will and should look at its own, you know, whether you work in an aspect of Brooklyn or where you work in an aspect of Queens, you're always trying to bring your neighborhood into the conversation. And I think that when you have such a pronounced, strong heritage like Harlem, it's just natural to look inwards, you know, uh, whether it's through the parlors in the beautiful brownstones or whether it's the long history of, um, you know, Harlem's, sense of place in northern Manhattan and and the diversity of Harlem. You think about El Barrio and East Harlem that obviously has much more uh, Dominican and Puerto Rican and Latin uh, feel. How do we work with that? So it, it, it also created big sense of questions for myself. How do we tackle um, this? How does that live on the menu? How does that live in design? Uh, do we do a night around this? So there's so many questions that comes from from how Harlem was structured as a place, and and how do we tackle that as the Red Rooster? So from that, I'm fascinated to ask you about Newark, New Jersey. Why why, why is the next place for you to uh, not quite Harlem? Well, I mean, I've I've always been interested in looking at communities where African Americans have had a very important part um, of building it, the community and also where a community that's rich on culture. And I will always look at restaurant commun- restaurant places from that narrative, right? So Newark then. Newark reminds me a lot about the city that I grew up in in Sweden, Gothenburg, a poor mm. town, heavy um, related to blue collar and, and um, you know, you can tell Newark's history that it was once one of the richest cities in America. You look at the buildings from the 20s and the 30s, they're beautiful, beautiful buildings. And then I look at the more recent history in terms of music, whether it's everything from Whitney to Not By Nature to, you know, the Fugees. I mean, so, or, or jazz way before that. So 
there is a uh, blue-collar, historic, but also culture point of view that I really speak to me. And always when you have those things, then I like our chance of creating a great restaurant. So it's really about bringing out that vibrant culture. Yeah, no, I think poor New Jersey gets kind of a bad rap from being um, the butt of New York's jokes. But as you just described, wow, look at all that comes historically out of of Newark, both in, in as you were saying, back to the 1920s and 30s and its original foundings, and then more recently through art and culture that doesn't always get recognized as the birthplaces of many very influential artists. Yeah, and there's, there's many things going on in just in Newark, but also a little bit outside Newark, from uh, farming and tech and so on, so and people, artisans, whether it's local honeymakers or fantastic beer makers. So there is, if you start looking underneath, under the hood, there is a lot of great stuff going on. And and whether we catch that in New York or not, um, you know, I I'm been fortunate enough to learn a lot about some of the craftsmanship that is happening, and I think it's fantastic. And it's a very vibrant community from. It's culture, but also from companies such such as Audible or or like you have the history of Rutgers right behind us with, you know, the the professors and the students really creating this, you know, dynamic university uh, town feel, which is always vibrant to be part of. You know, there's always great discussions going on, debates. Yeah, I'm really struck by the fact that, and maybe it's related to the fact that you bridge so many different cultures in your own personal experience, but that you, in all of these situations, are really looking well beyond the stereotypes to really what's there and wherever you're you're looking, you're looking, wait, what are all the great things this place has to offer? Let, let's not dwell on the negative or what the preconceptions are. But I think also that... Um you think about all the small businesses that have been there for for a very long time. We're quick on saying, calling out what the neighborhood is as an outsider, but it's also very underinformed because whether a place is trendy or hip or not, in the meantime, they're just small businesses that keeping the community together, and uh, they. It's sometimes we do a quick analysis of what neighbors should be or is without knowing that these are actually kept together between churches and um, uh, places like Rutgers, but also places like small small businesses. You know, when you walk in Newark and you walk in the Ironbound, there are Portuguese restaurants that have been there for 30, 40 years that have been a staple part of the community, or Galician restaurants that's been there way before it was trendy with Spanish food. So this is just a community made with families and immigrant families that have been working hard and sticking together with the the people that were there before them. That's just people being figuring out to work together. And how, do you have a special knack or do you, was it just a person? Because I'm noticing also this other trend that relates going back to your TV show, No Passport Required, which is how do you discover these places? What what was the the match that got struck that turned you on to really thinking seriously about Newark? Was it you know, one I, moment? I, first was of all, we work slow. Right? We, these things take much longer time than what people think, right? Because obviously guests or viewers come to you when we launch something as they should. But, you know, Newark, we worked on for four years, no passport for two years, you know. So very often when I get interested in something, I, I try to slow it down and then see if, it is, if there's something really 
deep tissue here that we should look at? And if there is, okay, how can we do a lot of research on it? I, 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 I'll really look at it almost as a uh, PhD work. You know, like I, I think about it. Sometimes we work for a long time and realize there's nothing there. And then we have to drop it. But you know, with no passport, the beauty was here, the opportunity to work with PBS and with Vox that could in so many different ways give their, their expertise, you know. Uh, Vox knew either through either knew lo- locally, not just great chefs or restaurants, but also other craftsmen that we gave us access to that. And with PBS, there's obviously a longstanding um, uh, research and capability of being such a, you know, leg- legacy network. So with PBS, a flag, we could go to places and talk to people that maybe would not have been interested to talk to us. So, and when we work more independent on a restaurant project, we apply the same level of of sort of research, and and through that we make great people and great friends. And through that, then all right, we start to think about, yeah, what would this restaurant look like? And it takes time. Well, that's yeah, no, that sounds wonderfully academic and. Obviously, uh, representative of the level of curiosity uh, that you and your, your your team have for all things, both food and, and culture. So we'll be right back. And I'm excited to hear what Marcus is going to say about his Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Summer is now in full swing. And that means so is Heritage Radio Network's summer membership drive. Please consider joining the Heritage Radio Network community by becoming a member. If you're a regular Inside Julia's Kitchen listener, think about setting up a monthly recurring donation. It's just $5 a month for an individual membership or $10 a month for one for your whole household. Your ongoing support helps ensure the future of Heritage Radio Network and its unique programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to join and check out the membership benefits now. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she inspired in their career. All right, Marcus, your turn. What's your Julia moment? Well, I have a couple of Julia moments that I will never forget. Um, actually, one of my favorite Julia moments was just a couple of um, weeks ago when I was with Jacques Papin. And we were in Aspen together. Uh, on the, and on the plane back, he was telling us all that we were a bunch of chefs. And it was talking with such joy about his and Julia's time together uh, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s uh, as they were, you know, doing cooking demonstrations and start coming on to these, uh, in you know, more bigger TV, TV work that they started to do. But really it was more talking about how small and obscure this idea was that him and Julia, uh, you know, they they really built something that became so much bigger than themselves, right? But in the beginning, it was just him and Julia, and sometimes they cut themselves, and they just wrapped it up and kept going, and 
you know, is way before assistants and way before sort of people thought about cooking as, as, as even as a profession. And it was just fascinating to me to look at the joy that Jacques had and all sharing all the memories. And it made me realize that all the things that we enter in today, whether it's food festivals or cooking on TV, Julia and Jacques are really the core, the building block for all of that. And they really paved the way for us to even have this conversation. And it was just magical to look at to listen to Jacques, and he, every time he brought Julia's name up, how excited he got, and he got that beautiful twinkle in his eyes, and that was is one of the best moments for me. I remember cooking for Julia a couple of times. Um, uh, once was in was actually at the Beard House, uh, but I remember cooking uh, in Minneapolis. We did a dinner together with Charlie Trotter and a bunch of chefs. And it was an honor for Julia, and I was so nervous, and mm. um, I didn't want to do too complex dish. I stayed with sort of with smoked salmon the way my uncles had taught me how to smoke it, and I was just brought as the plate come back, and she liked it, and she finished the whole thing, and it just made me really, really important uh, uh, feel important and were part of sort of like the American food scene, and. Um, uh, I remember one time at the Beard House, she was, Julia was much, much taller than me. So she was <laughs> constantly looking down at me as we were speaking. I was looking up. And it was just like a good moment of of understanding that James Beard, Julia Charles, Jacques Papin, they built this thing that we now call sort of American food and American, um, you know, to be part of that scene is something that I don't take for granted. But... Um, I'm always will be grateful for what Chile Child and eventually Shock and the next generation gave us to build on. That's wonderful. I mean, a story of sort of the full coming of feeling and acceptance in a in a in a country and a world that you've chosen to join. And then I think it's always wonderful to hear that Julia had that special knack for bringing people joy, and she can still do that when she's not even present on a plane back from Aspen. And she was very curious, you know, like, how did you smoke it? How did you do, what did you put in? I remember I did a sauce, a mustard sauce with coffee, espresso, for example, because I wanted a tonality of bitter. And she was like, pick that up, you know? And, and it's just like, just curious, you know, just not just taking anything for granted. Just very curious. And I thought that was, wow, this is fascinating to me. Yes, something tells me you 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 have a similar quality of curiosity to Julia. Maybe maybe a little little damped down in its level of an outward enthusiasm, but I, I I suspect it's there. And even with no passport, you know, being on PBS, which you know I thought about that a lot. Like we're here on the house that both Julia and Charlotte built, um, so it was very important to do work that. It's a learning material too that people can actually learn something from. And I was just thinking, I was thanking Shakira about this. It's like you, you guys really educated Americans about food for a very, very long way. We also entertained them. It wasn't a, just boring and uh, classes. This was very informative and fun. So I, I thought about that a lot. How do we keep the messaging both fitting so it's both fun and informative at the same time? Well, I think for those who are in for a treat, if they haven't yet watched any of the episodes of No Passport Required, it, it very much 
embodies that. I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you um, for being with us on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks, bye. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo. Contact JuliaChildFoundation.org. You can like us on Facebook. Search at Julia Child. You can follow the foundation on Twitter at where our handle is at JuliaChildJCF. And I'm at T. Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. We're on Instagram. Search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. To learn more about Marcus's universe, go to MarcusSamuelson.com. And yes, there's two double S's in Marcus Samuelson. His social media handle is at Marcus Cooks. And if you want to learn more about CCAP, their handle is at CCAP Inc. I-N-C. Search for them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also check out No Passport Required on Eater.com and or check your local PBS station listings. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The Front Chef. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashore. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review so new listeners can discover us. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.